All right. Welcome to another Wagon Wheel. Jared Kimber here to answer the questions that you have asked. Um, if you are in the YouTube at the moment, this is the last live video we're going to be having on this channel, on the main channel, I should say. I don't know which channel you're listening on uh, or watching on. Uh, everything else is going to go to the Jared Kimber Podcast Network. Uh, if I will be tweeting about it after the show, so you can go over after the show and you'll be able to see the link to the other channel. Please go and support us there. But all the live stuff will be taken away from this channel, um, the main channel, and it will just be the pre pre packaged, pre planned, the videos we make, normal videos, um, and all lives will go on the other one just to separate things, make it a little bit easier for us um, and everything else. Uh, but huge thanks to everyone who has been coming in these rooms. Um, we get really good chats in the room. If you're desperate to ask a question today in the YouTube, uh, Super Chat is your best bet. Uh, if you are, um, uh, want to get them in and you can't see any of these lives before, Patreon is your best bet, which is exactly what Ian has done here. Uh, he says, um, on the back of your fantastic Basil de la Vera podcast, you, you should all go and read and watch that and do all that sort of thing. I was reading about Vincent van der Beel. One season of county cricket for Middlesex, 1980, he took uh, 85 wickets, an average of 15, and they won the title, never played county cricket again. I wanted to ask about lesser-known white South African players during the apartheid era and whether they have any good books on their careers, success values, relationships with the regime. Seems a topic worth digging into. So for those who don't know, there's um, um, Vincent Vanderbilt was incredible. There's actually some good books also. The, the main book I could think of, Ian, is probably the opposite of what you want, but I think it's called Blacks and Whites, I want to say. Um, and it's about non-white players in South Africa during, you know, between, well, from the beginning of time through to uh, readmission. Uh, so, so I, you know, I think that was certainly, um, that's certainly a very good book. There is, is not a great market for cricket books on those players from that era. And the reason there isn't, Ian, and I'm not saying there aren't books written about them, because I'm sure there would have been, but I think probably by the 90s, it would be harder to find them. So I'm not aware of any of those books. And the reason is, is that, of course, in the 90s and 2000s, people don't want to look back. So, so for those who don't know, Cricket South Africa only give player numbers to players from 1992 onwards. So if you played for South Africa um, in any other period, you don't actually exist as a South African cricketer. Uh, I still think that that's wrong because you could make claims that many teams discriminated many different ways um, all the way through and your history is your history. You have to own that. Um, but that is why that is the case. And so I think books on those sorts of things, Ian, are not particularly um, uh, what's the best way to put it? I think after 1992, they probably it would be a hard sell. Um, I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm not aware of any. But you know, there are some really incredible cricketers that I, I don't think people know a lot about. So Peter Pollock is, you know, uh, because Graham Pollock was so good, Peter Pollock isn't given the respect that um, he probably should have. So he certainly won. Clive Rice is a very famous one in England, but I don't think he's that famous in the rest of the cricketing world um, in the same way. Uh, who else is? Uh, um, Dennis Lindsay is the wicketkeeper. Who, uh, and, and I think with Dennis Lindsay, we don't really know if... Um, uh, how good he actually was as a cricketer because he plays two series and he ends up with a batting he plays 19 tests he ends up with an batting average of 37 but within that i think there's one series where he makes three or four hundreds against australia and the rest of the time we don't see that but certainly you know a sort of i don't know what would you call him adam gilchrist light type um level talent um uh overall and there's a lot of them right and there's a lot of there's also a lot of um 
black players and colored players and Asian players that we start to find out about um, in that, what, 1975 to 1985 period that start to come through as it's quite clear at, by that point that, you know, there's so much talent in South Africa just outside the white communities. Oh, before this blows up on TikTok, I'm using colored in the South African um, sense of the word, um, which is, you know, it's a community that they refer to themselves um, uh, down in Cape Town. Uh, I think it's just Cape Town, but it's that area anyway, so, uh, uh, in that way. But we do know that a lot of players come through, so there are more books and stuff about them because that is the more socially acceptable sort of thing. Um, I do think I might have a book on the history of apartheid sports somewhere, which is about all the players, uh, you know, tennis players who didn't get opportunities. And obviously Gary Player did quite well in golf, but of all the sports that we're going to allow it. Um, so I do think, Ian, there is a very good book about apartheid sport, but I don't think it's specifically about cricket. And I'm sure I have it, um, but I can't remember the name of it off, off the top of my head. It's a really interesting time. For those who don't know, like the, the full history of it, and we talk about it a little bit in the Basil Dolivera documentary as well. But, you know, if you, if you look at the full, the full story that, you know, the India was supposed to play the Davis Cup against South Africa in 1974. So, they, so South Africa win the Davis Cup in the middle of this basically global ban. Um, different sports suspend them at different times. Some sports don't suspend them. They just don't play them anymore, which is probably more what cricket did, if we're being honest. Um, it, certainly up until the World Cup exists, the Men's World Cup exists. Um, the w second Women's World Cup was supposed to be in South Africa. I mean, there's a lot of random things going on. You've got Kerry Packer series. You've got the World 11s, you know, where we get to see players like Barry Richards play. There was no doubt that they had a lot of talented players coming through. Uh, and a lot of those players had their careers cut short. Although Mike Proctor talk, has talked about this a lot. He's like, if if my career had to be not as good as it could have been and 50 million people have a better life, then it's worth it. And it's a really interesting take on it. And to be fair, you know, not, not all the players in that era probably believe that. Vikas says, Gil was on 83 of 65 and Shreyas was on 84 of 69. Shreyas only added 21 runs in his next 26 balls and Gil was even worse, uh, 17 balls in 27. Speci uh, especially with Gil, it has become a pattern as he always slows down after making an 80. Should uh, we learn from Coley, who mostly made his last 50 runs of 30 to 35 balls? I, I don't know if Coley's the best example of this. I mean, the England team is the perfect example of this, of it was seen within the team culture of England as a negative way of um, playing. And so they didn't care if you made your 100. You know, the Dal Milan not out is a real line in the sand for that English team where Owen, he, I mean, Dal Milan makes 100 in New Zealand and Owen Morgan goes to the press afterwards and is really clear. This is not acceptable to have a not out. You left a run on the board and that might have been the run that we could have lost the game with. That's not how we play this game. I, I think if you look at, there's, there's an inherent selfishness in batting, right? And, you know, Callis, Gavaska, Boycott, um, Barrington, there's heaps of them, right? All the way through the history of the game. Chief Chandrapal, right? They're incredibly focused on what they are doing and they're in their own little bubble and they bat the way they bat. Jonathan Trott, all the way through history, we've seen this. And it's a part of batting. And there are a lot of very good players who have that skill to them. It's interesting that the way that cricket develops in different parts of the world. And I think that specifically in Australia, cricket was played as a team sport. And I think because of the amateur side of English cricket, a lot of in England specifically, and then that spreads out to a lot of other countries, it's seen as a team sport made of individuals, which is slightly different. And, and I think because of that, um, you know, 
and this has happened with Australian cricket as well. Dean Jones is a very good example of someone who didn't quite play the way that the team always wanted him to play. Um, and they thought he was kind of playing. I think the thought was that Dean Jones put Dean Jones before the Australian team. Whether that is true or not, I don't know. But, you know, me and Dan Bredick, we've never really done this piece, but Dean Jones is a fascinating cricketer because he basically becomes the world's best ODI batter in an era where Javid Mindad and Viv Richards are still, you know, playing. He becomes this incredible ODI batter. And then after that, he sort of maintains his average, but his strike rate comes down. And it could just be that people worked him out and they bowled to him in a more defensive way. Or it could have been that he started playing for his average, knowing that that would keep him around. But eventually it doesn't. Because the team does start to think that he is not playing in the way that he should be playing. It's a really fascinating discussion. So I think that there is certainly a case within limited overs cricket in general that it, it's funny, you know, that you bring these players up. I think you'll find that, and I, I don't know if I, I've done this directly, but I'm pretty sure you'll find that most cricketers in the world slow down from 85 to 100, right? It is something that I think now because of the advanced analytics and because now we see the games, right? Remember, traditionally, we didn't see the majority of these games, right? They weren't all broadcast. They weren't all available to us. And so I do think that there was a, a part um, of this that meant we didn't see it. Now we see every single game and we have the ability to make these judgment calls. We now look at the stats, right? It's a normal thing. I think if cricket's dependence on 50s and 100s does actually hold back a lot of good cricket so here's my favorite fact Vickers and this doesn't quite answer your question but my favorite fact is you are more likely to be dismissed between 100 and 105 than you are between 95 and 100 in I think all formats of cricket but certainly in test and first class cricket I think it also holds up in one day cricket I never looked at it in T20s and why is that right it's the opposite of what we think about nervous 90s and all this sort of stuff no because when you're getting close to your 100 you are really really careful and you don't play any silly shots right once you get to 100, there's an emotional release. Making 100 actually makes you a worse batter at that point, right? The emotional release of making that score. So our dependence on these two milestones, and realistically, 150 and 200, we don't quite celebrate in the same way. But our dependence on those two milestones actually does, I think, hold some players back. So yes, I do think there is something to be said for this. I don't know. I, I mean, I would have to go through all of Gill's hundreds to have a look at this. But I, this is certainly a thing that a lot of teams are talking about now. And it's a very different way and a very modern way of thinking about the game. And, you know, traditionally, the 100 was probably seen as such an important thing that people didn't worry about it. Whereas now we more look at the total runs scored. Um, and that's T20 has played a big part of that. So is modern analytics um, and also the way we think about cricket. Will says, imagine there was an independent Khalistan competing in this World Cup. What would their lineup be? Oh, my God. Um, uh, what I'm trying to, I now have to look at the map to try. And then I would have to know where all the players are, Will. Um, yeah, look, it would be interesting. Um, I, there's, there's heaps of really cool ones if you want to do that, actually. Uh, we'll be doing a podcast soon on what if New Zealand had joined Australia and Western Australia hadn't. But they wouldn't be Western Australia at that point, but you get my point. Uh, or maybe they would be Western Australia. I don't know. North Korea, South Korea. I don't know how these things work. Um, um, uh, Korea is there. It's not South Korea. Anyway, you get my point. Um, so, yeah, would there be a, would there be a, um, that would be a really, really different one. Um, there's another one too, of which I have now forgotten. Oh, I mean, what if, what if um, uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh stayed together as a country is another really cool one. Um, what um oh god there's one more really obvious one so there's all these different things that you could do right not to mention what 
the West Indies. What would the West Indies um, be like if they were split up and, and everything else? So I do think there's quite a few um, cool ones, but I don't don't have a Kalistan lineup on me, uh, Will, but I think it would be fascinating. Um, you know, there are times when Mumbai, New South Wales, Barbados would have had fascinating international teams on their own uh, and, you know, how that would have worked. Um, it, uh, you know, would it have changed cricket? Those sorts of things. All very, very fascinating things to think about. Uh, Nadika says, if we were suddenly to live in a world where there was as much money in one-day cricket as T20 and there were one-day franchise leagues around the world, which current players would benefit the most from becoming one-day specialists? Shy Hope <laughs> um, is someone who instantly comes to mind. Um, Kane Williamson would be another one. What about the bowlers? Um, yeah. I wonder if in one day cricket, and because there isn't as much money in this, I haven't really looked at this in deep, but I wonder if in one day cricket there is more money for that sort of 10 over finger spin bowler who can bat a little bit than there is in T20 cricket where the finger spinners um, don't take a lot of wickets and quite often don't always bowl out their overs because of matchups and everything else. So, you know, Akshar, Jadeja, Santner, Agar, those sorts of guys, I wonder if they're all worth more money. Uh, Moen Ali, um, Maharaj less because he can't hit, but I wonder if all those guys are worth a little bit more money uh, in this particular system. I'm trying to think if there's a fast bowler. Um, yeah. And then also, what about players like Shah Masood and Pajara um, who have ridiculous list A numbers, but aren't going to play for their country that often, but they would certainly be in a league, right? They would, you know, <laughs> if you've got a guy who can average 50 or 60 in, in 50 over cricket, he's probably going to get a gig. Um, uh, so I think there's a bunch of players like that. Sam Hain, Sam Billings. Um, I feel like I'm missing a couple of others as well. But those are the ones. I'm trying to think if there's a fast bowler who would prefer, or maybe it's like, a, maybe it's a seamer who moves the ball. Yeah, I can't think of, there must be seamers. Um, like for instance, Liam Plunkett was more suited to one day cricket than he was T20 cricket. Um, that, with that softer ball hitting, you know, hitting the seam and, and everything else that didn't work for him as well in T20 cricket. Not that he wasn't a good T20 cricket cricketer, but I just think he was an even better one day bowler. So there must be other guys out there that would be a little bit like that. Maybe someone like Pesquero, um, you know, who can bowl a knuckleball, who, you know, strong sort of bowlers. I, I don't know. It's a really fascinating question though. Because says, what do you make of today's batting in white ball cricket? I feel like he's very overhyped with his batting in the white format. Very rarely plays in impactful innings. I know he has 31 batting average because he has 43 times not out. Um, doesn't matter what the situation of the match is. He's always going to take 15 to 20 balls uh, before he has impact. So uh, I think with um, Jadeja, you're saying white ball cricket. So I don't really know how far you are looking at it. There was a point at time where he was arguably one of the best death hitters in T20 cricket in the world. Um, absolutely phenomenal. You know, his ability to hit boundaries off seam bowlers at the end. Uh, Quite often, as you say, there's a bit, he, he's a little bit of a slow starter. I think he's been trained under Dhoni, right? Like, I, I do think that is a, a very much a part of the way that he plays, um, is that sort of J Dhoni defensive mindset, um, style, uh, and then, and then leave it all at the end. Um, he has a lot of not outs, but I'm pretty sure that I have checked this and I don't think he has a high percentage of not outs compared to other number sevens. And I mean this of, if you find a number seven in, in one day cricket, who scores a lot of runs? I think generally they have a lot of not outs. Like it's they're not going out because they're very good. Um, I think with him it's more you've got. I'm trying to remember when it was. Is it 2018? I'm just trying to find out. I think it's after 2018 that there's certainly um, a big change in the kind of player he's been. But 
if you were asking me this in 2020, you'd be talking about a guy who was, I'm just looking this number up now, he was averaging 55 with a strike rate of 98. The last two years, he's played about 17 uh, one-day internationals. He's averaging around 30 at that time with an incredibly s- slow strike rate. I don't think that's the sort of player he is. And I'd be very surprised if that's the sort of player that they get consistently. Um, that I don't know if there's an issue there um, in his batting, but I'll say that in he in T20 internationals, and I could look at T20 domestic as well, in T20 internationals, he's been bashing the ball everywhere in the last couple of years. So I think he's had a very mixed career. But one thing I would say, because is it's actually very common for an all-rounder like him to have a very mixed career. He, he was a very late developing batting player. And he probably developed in a way that allowed him to fit into a situation that worked for India in the same way that Dan Vittori and Imran Khan did for Pakistan and, and New Zealand. And you get this a lot. And at, there are probably at times when he doesn't quite f- fit into that mold. Uh, it, you know, we've seen at times where India's like, oh, you need to bat at number five now. It's like, okay, I'm going to bat at number five in a test match for India. And we know that he's not a test match number five, right? It's not his main skill set. We've seen at times in test matches, it become this sort of uber blocker, right? And then we've seen in T20 cricket, he just, you know, turned himself into this late death hitting type of player. And maybe in one day cricket, that those skills have kind of overlapped. He's not a um, a great number seven. Uh, sorry, he's not a great batting talent. He's a number seven for a reason, Vikas. So of course he's going to have flaws. Of course he's going to have to maybe start slower than everyone else. But you're talking about a player who can bat at number seven, who can average 30 um, at a strike rate of mid-80s over a 10-year career. Um, he's clearly a very above average player. When it works, I think he's very, very good at knocking spinners around, which I think part of the reason he starts slow is quite often when he comes in and gets spinners, he can knock spinners around. And then it, what, what he does is he waits for the seam bowls to come on and he's very, very good at the ability to, to hit seam bowling. But he's not a fully, he's not like a, you know, if you compare him to, I don't know, who's, what's the best number sevens in the world um, than him? I'm tr- trying to think of some off the top of my head. Um, well, England are going to have Moeen Ali or Sam Curran probably in, in that sort of position. Neither of them are better at batting than he is. Um, Santner, perhaps, certainly not a better batter than, than Jadeja. Um, um, what's his name? Um, Marco Janssen, certainly not a better batter than Jadeja. What are we picking on here? I, I, I'd find it hard to think he's not in the top three number seven players. And he does give you flexibility because he's not just a late order hitter. He can also come in and knock the ball around early on. Um, if he was a great batter, he'd be batting higher up the list. Right, he's just—he's not—he's not a—he's a—he's a very good—he's very good at working out roles for his batting, and then very dogmatic at the way he does that, which does remind me a lot of Imran Khan and Dan Vittori. Graham Thorne says, "How do you think? Uh, who do you think would win in a Test match between all-time eleven of wrist spinners versus finger spinners?" Uh, so we have Gail Sawag, Viv Richards, Root, Peterson, Hooper, or Mo, Glenn Phillips is the wicketkeeper, uh, Jadeja. Lion, Ashwin, Murley. Uh, is Murley a finger spinner? It's for another conversation. He's probably not, right? He's a wrist spinner who bowled off spin, which is. Uh, and then, um, oh, you've got Mancad uh, Graham in the wrist spinner. So he is a finger spinner. Um, so I don't know who would be your other opener um, there. I don't know. Michael Bevan bowled a lot of wrist spin. I'm trying to think of anyone else who could. Uh, another part-time. Well, Atherton. <laughs> Pulled a bit of it, Rispin. But you've got Mancats. We'll take him out. We'd have to have someone else there. Katic, Lubbershane, Smith, Sarwan. Oh, I forgot about Sarwan. Um, we came up with a better number five than Sarwan. I, I tell you what, really interesting one of this list. You could put 
like often Sobis in either team. Um, and probably more of a finger spinner than a wrist spinner, if we're being honest. Um, uh, then you got Aubrey Faulkner, Richie Benno, um, Murray. So you could have Tim Zura, who almost played a test match for Australia um, as a spinner, and Warren Kumble, um and Abdul. Um, who's the better team? I feel like the bowling team, as the wrist spinning bowling team, would be able to take more wickets. Um, but I feel like the batting is slightly deep. I don't know. Then he got Aubrey Faulkner at six. It's a good question. Uh, I can't help you there, Graham, but certainly one of these teams would win. <laughs> Patrick says, if cricket were to install Hawkeye cameras at the ba- uh, like the baseball stat card system, how do you think the game would change? If you're talking about the the, the all-around um, system, uh, it would improve fielding. That's that's what the big change would be at this stage. It, it's a really interesting thing with cricket because in some ways it was massively ahead of baseball, understanding that players want to hit the ball in certain spots um, and then committing to that. And then baseball got so angry when people actually worked out where fielders should go that they changed the uh, conditions of the game. But but I certainly think that um, cricket was mapping where the ball was going a long, long... I mean, I think we have wagon wheels from the 1700s, certainly from the early 1800s, but I think we might even have some from the late 1700s, you know, the Hamilton era. Um, but we haven't mapped where the fielders have been standing. And really, over the last 15 years, it's a huge mistake. You know, Crickviz has their fielding metric and everything else, but it's done off the TV. You can't even tell where the fielders always are. Um, we're so far behind in knowing where fielders should be. It's a huge problem. So, you know, if you had the uh, baseball system or the basketball system, any of those um, uh, cameras, and we know that we are now can track um, fielders because we've seen it for ICC events. I think we might have seen it for the IPL as well, but certainly for the ICC events, we've seen it. Um, we, that, that data could help the game massively. Um, whether it's ever going to happen or not, I don't particularly know. Uh, all right, we'll have a quick break here. And then after the break, uh, we'll come back, finish the Patreon, and then we'll have a look around the room. You're listening to Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber, and I will speak to you again. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit slash play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at slash play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Have you ever wondered how I watch so much cricket? I use VPNs to log into accounts from all around the world. But because before, even simple things like when something exciting would happen in a match, I would rush over to social media, and when I got there, the clips would say something along the lines of, this video is not available in your area. In fact, most of the coolest cricket stuff in the world at the moment is geo-blocked because some random board didn't sign a deal where you happen to live. If you're a hardcore cricket nerd, the only way is to have a VPN. And we suggest Surfshark. They will give you the speed of your favorite quick bowler. They're as inventive as a T20 batter after a bunch of dot balls, and they're as secure as a specialist wicketkeeper with the softest hands in the world. And guess what? The kind folks at Surfshark are going to give you a deal. Enter the promo code Kimba for an extra three months free at surfshark.deals forward slash Kimba. 
There are probably other things that Surfshark can help you with, like data and identity theft and traceability and intrusive advertising. But for us, it is our best weapon against the evil cricket geoblock. Go to Surfshark and type my name in K-I-M-B-E-R and get three months free today. Uh, remember, if you want to put any questions up, um, uh, Super Chat is the best way to go. I see lots of people in the chat today. Huge and Sanjay and Sagar, Adil, uh, Will is in there, Rohan, uh, Taskin Rebel. So a Taskin and Rebel with two different people, not a Taskin Rebel. Uh, but yeah, if you do want to ask a Super Chat, please do. If not, just put your normal um, questions in and I will get to them uh, when I can. But uh, where are we here? Let's get rid of Patrick's question, which is still in front and center. And we'll go back to the Patreon ones. Bloody Bugger says, in Ashes series history, Australia have won 34 and retained six series. England have won 32 and retained one. These numbers give the Ashes a somewhat equal appearance, but the aggregate test wins, losses, draws, tell a different story. Australia, 152 test wins. England, 112 wins with 97 draws. In the history of Ashes cricket, why are Australia consistently better than England? So England have a really good period from after the sort of the sort of birth of the Ashes when they start taking it seriously for a little while. And then Australia become a much be bigger team early on. And there's a really clear reason why this happens. Forget the conditions, which do happen, which do help Australia. Um, a big part of why this happens is because for England, county cricket was still the biggest thing. Yes, losing in Ashes every now and again was terrible and they hated it, but county cricket was the main driver of of cricket whereas shield cricket was always a ways and means for the australian team to get as good as possible so they could beat england it doesn't mean that there weren't great rivalries because obviously the victoria and new south wales rivalry for a very long time was huge massive event right you know fifty thousand people um going to games all that sort of stuff but it still wasn't county cricket and it was never treated as county cricket cricket in australia was trying to eventually represent the australian cricket team you know look at the difference you know when england would go on tour they would go on tour as the mcc right? As that almost a subsidiary of Lords, right? Um, whereas in Australia, it was very much the Australian cricket team was a very, very important thing. There are also, um, there are also, I think, advantages that Australia had. For instance, the, the pitches were so different to what the England players were used to playing on. Whereas the England, uh, the Australian players, uh, were going over to England quite regularly anyway. Not not to play county cricket or anything like that, but they were going these very long tours. They were getting used to it. And also in Australia, um, in the uncovered era, you still had green pitches a lot of the time. You still had softer pitches on occasion. So that in that period, if you have a look, Australia has spinners, they have seam bowlers, they have fast bowls and everything else. Whereas England is already becoming more of a finger spin and seam bowling dependent and, and swing bowling eventually as well, um, dependent world. Australia has more variety in the surfaces um, uh, available to them at, at that stage. So I think that's another very, very big advantage. Never underestimate also the little brother, big brother thing of what other way was Australia like outstripping the former empire, right? Like the Australian cricket team becomes, you know, uh, Sachin Zendulkar, uh become is like the face of, and Imran Khan you could put up there as well. They become the face of India and England. Well, Don Bradman becomes the face of Australia, right? And a big part of that is beating England at cricket. So there is certainly a there is certainly that aspect that, you know, Australia weren't really known on the global stage. You know, it was a very remote place. It was almost impossible to get to for anyone else. Um, and cricket is the first kind of sport in the same way that we saw we've seen with India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan. That's why when I think when people think that the Asian teams have grown differently than some of the Western teams. It's not particularly the case. 
it's actually very similar when you go back to the, the history. It's just on a different time period because of when England left and what England left those countries with. And, you know, Australia is very different to New Zealand and South Africa. All these countries are very different, but it's a very similar path, right? They are trying to prove themselves, uh, you know, and Australia eventually moves beyond just cricket, right? But for a long period, they don't. So eventually Australia, you know, through swimming, um, and then, and then I suppose you have, you know, rugby and, um, eventually basketball. Then you have Australia takes over Hollywood for, you know, even now still has a lot of stars in Hollywood, but starts to take over Hollywood from a, you know, director's point of view and all these things start to change a little bit. Crocodile Dundee becomes a cult cultural hit and everything else. But for the big part of that early period, the cricket team is the main thing, right? There are two, you know, Australia has a depression and the two things that get Australia through the depression are a horse from New Zealand and a cricketer, right? These are such massive parts of the Australian culture at that point. You know, the, the ABC has a, like a, a, a letterbox that you send letters to and the code is 9994, right? It's literally Bradman's average. That's how important he was to the society at that time. Um, so that is not what cricket is in England. Cricket in, in England is a very different kind of thing. Um, firstly, football is growing at a massive rate at, at that point. Uh, and that is sucking off a whole class of people at times. Secondly, cricket is divided in England. It's not the best players play. It's amateur and professional. There is a class system built into it. So you could argue that Australia is trying to put out their best players. Now, they're not, always, they're not picking players from Western Australia. They're not picking players from Tasmania. Not always picking players from Queensland early on, right? But they are picking the, the best players that are available to them uh, that, they, that they're aware of regularly. And then they start to br branch out to it. Western Australia and, and Tasmania and, and Queensland as well. And England is still at that point looking at amateurs. And even when they don't have amateurs, they have that sort of amateur structure within their game, right? You know, the capping system and all these different things. So Australia is, is developing in a very different way. The other thing is what we go back to before is Australia were playing cricket to make their country proud as a team. England players were professionals or amateurs, and they had all these different things about their game. Um, they didn't have the same kind of thing. So I do think there's a lot of very different issues there, but facilities, um, you know, climate, uh, all those sorts of things certainly play a big role because, I mean, for a long period of time, a lot of the cricketers who were playing for England were, uh, sorry, were playing for Australia, were English cricketers, right? You know, Fred Spothoff was born in Yorkshire and all these different players. So it's the exact same genetic people, but they're in a different social environment. They're in a different environment uh, from a patriotic sense or even pre-patriotism in some of these cases, but, you know, trying to build your new part of the world um, sense. The, the actual way that the game develops is really, really different on the field and also structurally off the field. All these things I do think do help Australia. And then if you want to go to modern cricket, what really happens is England had this old professional system that did actually help them produce a lot of very good cricketers at a certain point. But as we've seen with counter cricket, it has its limitations. And then Australia goes from amateur to professional way quicker than England does, right? So England's sort of semi-professional and, and Australia just has this huge uptick where they essentially copy from Australian rules football and a little bit of rugby uh, league. And they professionalize their game in a huge way, which means they have another influx of players. We've seen that with the men and now the women. They've done it twice, right? No, every cricket board in the world has seen what you need to do. You need to be ahead of the game. You need to pay your players. You need to look after them, make sure they play 12 months of the year um, and try and stay ahead of the game. Australia's done it twice and they completely dominated men's cricket. Then they completely dominated women's cricket. Again, 
England didn't do this. And if you talk to the players in the 90s, they'll be like, yeah, you know, we kind of suggested this stuff. We kind of knew what we should be doing. But that's not how cricket was thought about in England. And so again, they were left behind a little bit there. James says, who's the fastest bowler according to legend? Is there a more impressive uh, apocryphal tale of pace bowling than Charles Courtright allegedly bowling a bouncer that was still rising when it crossed the boundary? Uh, by the way, I did trigonometry on this. And if true, it would have cleared about a five-story building on the boundary if it passed the batter at head high. We'll still go, yeah, sounds unlikely. Um, there was that, that great guy, and I want to say his name was Atul Sharma, who they claimed were, could bowl regularly over 100 miles an hour, um, who had trained. He trained with Ian Pont and... Um, he was one of my favorite stories because, like, there were articles written about this guy and, you know, how, how he's going to be the fastest bowler in the world and how Javelin was a big part of what he did and he ran in, in a different way and everything. Um, and I'm sure he bowled quick enough because he obviously, um, well, there's not a lot of footage in bowling, so there is a bit of whatever. But, I mean, I think it, he impressed Ian Pont, who's obviously an international bowling coach, right? So he was always one of my favorite stories. Um, trying to think of some of the others. I think a lot of them, those sort of stories are more about the hitting, right? I don't know if there's that many stories about bowlers being that fast. There's one of, and I forget the bowler's name, but playing in a game, which was one of the reasons we ended up with leg guards because he breaks someone's legs, um, in a game. And, you know, that was supposed to be, you know, so incredibly quick, uh, but yes, the Charles Courtright one is, I mean, quite obviously could not have happened. Um, uh, and, uh, I, you know, <laughs> of all the, of all the stories in cricket, like I, I have a lot more time for, you know, the six, um, hit over the top in, um, uh, of Lords, of Lords Pavilion. A lot of the fast bowling ones, I find it harder to believe them. Um, just based on when we look at footage of older bowlers. <laughs> Just not sure there could be an outlier of that level. Ben says, how important are matchups in modern white ball cricket selection and squad building? If your best seven batters are all left-handers and the opposition has a couple of decent off-spinners, would teams consider selecting players outside their best batters for matchup purposes? Or would they trust uh, that their better players would find a way? I don't think you'd find any team that if they have viable options of a similar level, that they would go into it with all left-handers or all right-handers. I think we've seen with India that they've got all right-arm seamers um, in their attack, so these things still can happen. But with batting, you would have to think that your seven batters were so much better than having any left-hand variability because you are setting yourself up for failure. The only other thing I would say is that I think the problem with matchups is that people talk about them like they're all the same. There are players who are left-handed who prefer the ball spinning um, away from them. Not as many with left-handers. There's certainly a lot of right-handers prefer the ball spinning away from them than they do into them. So you really need to know your individual players. There, there are a lot of players of spin who either like facing wrist spin or like facing finger spin and not the other way around. So you need to really know what you are doing when you're making those decisions. If you just go, oh, we've got seven left-handers, we can't do this, you're making a mistake. You should be a lot smarter uh, with the way that you go about that. Um, and I do think that is an issue where teams, I do think teams make, Really, really obvious mistakes. I'll take you back to my Mitch Santner um, piece I wrote for Crick Info in 2019 during the World Cup, where New Zealand just didn't play him against Australia's left-handers because it was a bit of a short boundary, which was fair. Um, but basically, because they thought um, he didn't, he wouldn't do as well against left-handers. Mitch Santner is a really good at that stage. Was a really good bowler against left-handers. Um, you know, and you've got to know your players. So 
you can't just make a decision based on whether which side of the bat someone is standing on. It's a terrible way of making a decision. Banterous Lemon says, who do you believe is the best role model for aspiring fast bowlers out of all the current international seamers, specifically in terms of technique and play style? Uh, Nokia, maybe? I mean, I think Nokia's a really interesting one in that we know that he was probably a mid-80s, mid to high 80s perhaps, and he went off and he worked on his game. So he worked on the technical parts of his bowling. C.S. Chuanza, uh, who works with us, has done a really good piece on this. He worked on the technical parts of his game and he worked on his fitness. Um, and I think what he does, to from, from we're talking fast, fast, fast bowlers here, his ability, and I'm assuming that's what you mean, because um, uh, you've said aspiring fast bowlers, but um, I think for me, technically, what he does seems more replicable than so. You know, you can't, I'm not sure you can really do what Boomerah or um, Joffre does, for instance. You know, those are very different. The other one that I would probably put up there would be Mitch, um, Mitch not Mitchell Stark, uh, would be Pat Cummins. I'm not sure, you know, he's not quite at that speed anymore, although partly that's on purpose, of course. Um, but again, you know, very, very, uh, I, I think with Nokia and, and Cummins, what you have is bowlers who can move the ball laterally, but be very accurate at high pace. And that, and their actions are replicable, replicable. Um, Whereas I'm not sure you could be Mark Wood. I'm trying to think of some of the other faster bowlers. They're a little bit more. Those, those are maybe things that aren't as easy to replicate. I could be wrong. Uh, Big Dash says, does India have a significant, meaningful home advantage anymore, given that key players from almost all teams play a ton of cricket in India? And given that Indian batters are not as great as playing spin as they used to be. I'm not sure that Indian batters are not as great as playing spin as they used to be. I think that the wickets are so in favor of spin bowlers that that's almost an impossible thing for us to be able to tell if we're being honest. Um, uh, and it's changed the way that Indians have to play spin, plus DRS has also changed the way that, that people play spin. But, but that's a separate thing. Um, is India home advantage basically about having nearly 100% crowd support as compared to maybe 40 to 60% crowd support when playing abroad? I think there are plenty of teams that probably have more than 60% crowd support when they're playing overseas. I think there are, I, I think I wrote an article about this somewhere, it might have been for the Cricket Times, where there are still you'd still rather play the World Cup at home than you would anywhere else. For the, this particular World Cup, it's quite interesting because obviously the ICC play a part in how the pitches will turn out. So that would take away any home advantage in that uh, particular way. When you say that other teams have players that um, have meaningful um, experience playing in India, I don't think there's any team where players are playing there all the time and feel like it's their home condition. There's a big difference between understanding it and knowing that you go okay there or not going okay there. And the opposite of that, which is you don't have any idea of, 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 of all. So yes, there's an, there's more of institutional knowledge across cricket teams of how to play in India, but the home team is always going to be better, right? Like there's a lot of cricketers who knew about playing in Australia and then came out to the last World Cup and the conditions were a little bit different because that's not a time of the year that they had played in Australia and the pitches didn't play that particular way. Um, you know, And so the Australian cricketers are used to playing early season tournaments in Australia, they're aware that those wickets are a little bit different than, than everyone else is, although Australia didn't play particularly well. Um, th so there's always a home advantage. The, the home crowd thing is a huge thing. The, I think if you're playing in front of 70 or 80% Indian crowd, which some of these games are, you know, even if you're Zimbabwe, you've probably got 500 Zimbabweans in the crowd, right, in some of those games. We saw with Australia uh, in that World Cup where you know, the Zimbabwean had good support. So there is that. But there is little things about the knowledge that, Things about change rooms and um, training facilities and 
net practices and sleeping in your own bed and understanding the culture and all these things that even if you've been to India a few times are not quite the same um, as being from India. So I still think India have an advantage in this World Cup for playing at home. And I think any team who plays a World Cup at home has an advantage. But up until India in 2011, I'm going to write in saying that no team had won the World Cup at home. And then since then, we've had three. Maybe that's just because it's been three very strong teams who happen to play at home. Although you would say that Australia in 92 probably should have been a lot better. Um, England had chances, of course, of winning in the early World Cups and everything else. Um, uh, and Sri Lanka kind of win at home, but obviously not not quite at home. Um, uh, you know, they're co-hosts at the, at the very least um, in that particular tournament. But but yeah, so look, it's I still think it's an advantage. Maybe it's not as strong as it has been before. All right, let us take a quick break, just just just, just a tiny break. Don't worry, it won't, won't be a long one or anything. Uh, and then after the break, we will come back and I'll get to everything you put in the chat room. I'm Jared Kimber. This is Wackenberg. Welcome back. Uh, we've got some great uh, conversations from the chat. There was just one that was following up a little bit here, uh, which is about Jadeja. So RSR says, Jadeja strikes at 84 in ODIs and 128 in the IPL. These are numbers over a large sample size. Do you think his power hitting ability is overrated? No. I think for a long period of time, he wasn't doing his power hitting. If you looked at Dan Vittori's, I think it's last five years, and if you look at Imran Khan's last 10 years with the bat, what you would see is someone who is approximating a very, very good player with the bat. If you look at their numbers before then, and I think for, I think Richard Hadley might be another one. There's a lot of all-rounders that, that are like them. Now, why is that the case? Right? Why is it that you have these all-rounders who take a long time to develop these secondary skills? Because when they are young, they are spending just as much time on their batting and on their bowling. Whereas they are going up against people. Think about Jadeja. Think about all the young Indian batting talent in India. And those guys are mostly spending 95% of their time getting better at batting. Well, Jadeja isn't doing that. At best, he's spending 45% on his bowling and 45% on his batting. Um, uh, or 50%, 50%. Well, however you want to look at it. I don't know, throw your fielding in on the side. But... Um, I think when he was coming up, not as much fielding practice was perhaps done, although you know it's certainly changing uh, in Indian cricket now. However you want to work that out, he's spending half of his time on it, right? We know that he had trouble developing his batting because the whole bits and pieces thing. I mean, Sanjay Mandraka wasn't wrong. It was just, if anything, Sanjay Mandraka hadn't noticed that he'd started to develop his game by that point. You know, the whole idea that Sanjay Mandraka says this thing and then Jadeja gets good, I've disproven that. There's a video on this channel about that. You can go back and have a look at it. It starts before that. But I wrote a piece in, ooh, it might have even been 2017 World Cup, um, about, or might have been one of the IPLs, about how what Jadeja hadn't really worked out is in Test cricket, he was quite attacking, but he was very good at attacking when the field was in. When he would come in in T20 and one day games, the field would be spread, and he didn't know how to clear those boundaries at that point. Right, he was, he could hit over any ring fielder's head very very well, but he couldn't attack. So it meant for a long time he was very defensive at times in in one day cricket, very accumulator driven. So what he did is he realized he was never going to bat in a position where that was actually going to be. He, there were always going to be better guys to bat at four, five, and six, right? In those limited overs teams. So what he did was he found a way to maximize his talent by remodeling himself into something else, right? Imran Khan does a very similar thing in test cricket and even in one-day cricket. 
Daniel Vittori does a very similar thing. They realize that they have to, Mark Watt is a really interesting example in Scotland of someone who has a little bit of batting talent, but he's worked out a way of making that work so that he can make regular runs. Mark Watt's not about to start batting at number four or five um, for Scotland, right? And part of the reason he's not going to be able to do that is he's never going to have enough time to spend on his batting. Um, I forget, uh, George Dockrell is a really good example of that. this from Ireland, of someone who always had a little bit of batting talent, but he was a spinner. So he's spending all of his time on spin bowling. His spin bowling falls apart and he comes back as a batter. Uh, Callum McLeod from Scotland is another. So there's a, we, there's a couple of cases of this. These, this wouldn't happen in, in top-level professional cricket as much, although we have seen you know, Mark Richardson you know, it does happen occasionally that players have this ability. So when you are looking at Ravi Jadeja's career, you're looking at how many games did he play when he was picked because he was a frontline bowler who could bat a little bit, but his batting hadn't developed yet. How many times was he playing and their batting, his batting was relied upon, but his batting wasn't actually good enough um, to do the job or wasn't ready for the job that he was in for, right? All the way through someone's career. As I just said, if you look at his record, uh, and you have a look at, at um, uh, you, you specifically, you know, look at when he has been at his best. He's found a way to be very successful and compared to other number sevens. The only reason we're having this conversation, right? And th- this is such a classic modern cricket conversation, right? We're now looking to poke holes in his entire record. It doesn't matter what his entire record is because for a vast majority of his career, he wasn't the player he is now, Right. The only reason we're having this conversation is for the last 10 or 15, one day as he's played for India, he hasn't made any runs, all right? He is, as I've already said, by far and away, one of the best number sevens in the world. And when he gets it right, he's a brilliant hitter at pace in that last five overs of one day internationals. And obviously, you know, similar sort of period for the last three overs, let's say, of a T20 game. You cannot deny that. He's done it consistently with ridiculous records at times. But he is a flawed batter at other times, which is part of the reason why his overall strike rate is so low. It's partly because when he comes into other positions, he's he's trying to knock the ball around. He's not as well suited to that sort of stuff. Um, It gets behind the rate a little bit and everything else. That's why he's at number seven. Do people not understand what a number seven is? A number seven is not your seventh best batter in the country. It's probably like your 30 best batter in the country. A number seven means they have another skill that has brought them into this team, right? That is why they are there. Even number sixes are usually not your sixth best batter. Right? Some, some occasions are, some teams you, could, you can do that. Quite often, it's a combination of fielding and batting and bowling that has got you into those positions. Right? They are not fully functioning players. If you go through the history of... I can't believe I'm going to have to do this. Um, if you go through the history of cricket, right? <coughs> Excuse me, everyone. And you look at um, ODI. So if we look at ODI cricket, let's go to cricket for here. I'm not going to share my screen, everyone. You're just going to have to handle it that I do it here. Um, just because if I did share the screen on StreamYard, I'd probably bring the whole thing down. Uh, but if we go to batting position at number seven, all right, and let's put let's put it in at friendly. Let's say a thousand runs. So a thousand runs batting at number seven, right? In one day international cricket. And let's see how many people we actually get. Okay, 15 people have ever made a 1,000 runs batting at number seven, right? In that, you have Chris Harris, uh, bowler, usually the fifth bowler, sometimes fifth, sixth for New Zealand, averages 32. Abdul Razak, another all-rounder, really, really good player, beautiful striker of the ball, but is also there because of his bowling. 
Afridi has the third most runs um, there. He averages 23, so a little bit lower average, but strike rate of 132. Incredible. The fourth highest runs in the history of ODI cricket batting at number seven is Ravi Jadeja, who does it at an average of 30.9, so roughly at that Chris Harris, Abdul Razak level. Slower than Abdul Razak, obviously quicker than um, uh, Chris Harris. After them on the list, you had Elton um, Chigambura from Zimbabwe. You have Sean Pollock. Um, they both average less than Jadeja. You have Kapil Dev, who averages seven less than Jadeja in that position. Great strike rate, though, for his era. Uh, then you have Ian Healy, wicketkeeper, was a Macram, Mo Ali, uh, who averages less than Jadeja um, as well, run a ball. Uh, uh, Kelly Bashud, the uh, Bangladeshi uh, player, Matthew Wade. So on this list, who averages more than Jadeja? Let's have a look. So it's a small list. Uh, so Mamadullah, Abdul Razak, Chris Harris, they're the only ones who average more than Jadeja. And let's look at strike rates. Right? Afridi. Oh, Pereira. Didn't see him down the bottom there. Mo Ali, Matthew Wade. So he's about middle of the road, maybe slightly lower um, uh, than he should be. This is just their records at number seven, of course. Um, right? There isn't a batter on that um, thing that is a full-time specialist batter only. Um, in test cricket, right? They are all secondary skill guys. Chris Harris is probably the closest to a specialist. Probably why he ended up with the most runs in that position. You are a flawed batter if you are in that spot. And it's incredible to me that people aren't still picking this up, right? This is what the game is. You need a strong number seven. Jadeja is a strong number seven but he is not a top-order player. And it's very rare to have a top-order player play in that number seven position for a long period of time, right? It's not to say we haven't had other... There are other number sevens who've been fantastic. Klusner was a number seven, for instance. There are certainly other players out there that would like that. But you have to understand specifically what we're talking about here. He is already a flawed player, right? You're picking him because he has a secondary skill, but he has made himself out to be a very, very good player in certain situations. But of recent time, he's hit a bit of a form uh, blip. As I said, T20 cricket, he hasn't hit that form blip. So I'm not massively worried about it. Um, I wouldn't be worried about it if I was an Indian fan. He might not make any runs this tournament. That's very possible. It's also possible he might bounce back and be absolutely fine, right? But there is no other number seven who's going to be able to bowl, bowl like him, right? That's the, that's the key thing. He allows India to have five frontline bowlers without losing a lot at that batting position. And I would say... I plus batting number seven throughout his entire career. Uh, let's have a look. Andy came through with a super chat. India's momentum has come off um, uh, um, as beating teams missing stars. Even if they, uh, even if we make the semis, our batting can be exploited by left arm, uh, slow left arm and leg spin, and there are worries about our top order and tail bowling. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in momentum, Andy. I'm not particularly worried about that at all. Um, it is. You know, it, they played the the um, Asia Cup, which is a basically a semi warm up tournament. The way that it was played, uh, you know, I know some teams certainly played it more seriously than others. Um, now they're playing a bunch of teams with secondary players. It's fine. Um, a batting can be exploited by left arm finger spin and leg spin. Look, spinning the ball away is is worth noting. Pretty sure that Virat Kohli is one of those players who plays the ball spinning away better than he does spinning in. Um, there, there are issues, uh, with, um, left arm and leg spin, perhaps, 
who are the teams who are going to exploit those issues against them, right? Um, Pakistan have two all-rounder spinners. Um, uh, South Africa have a left-arm wrist spinner and Maharaj, who I believe India play pretty well. Um, Australia would be one team that would have leg spin and left-arm finger spin. Uh, England have Adil Rashid, who perhaps is no longer the best that he's ever been. Uh, New Zealand have Santner and Sodi. I'm not... Hasaranga and uh, Welligi would be a really good combination, but um, Sri Lanka don't have them. India is by far and away the most balanced team coming into this World Cup and flexible team. Uh, not flexible, deep team coming into this World Cup. Um, there's no way, Andy, to look at this and say that they're not. Right? It's in home conditions. They are in form. I mean, I don't agree with you. I, I don't I have a... a agree with momentum as i was saying before but they're in form which is a very good thing to be uh they got backups in most positions if they get injuries you know like if boomer gets injured shami and siraj more than capable of taking that uh lineup uh, together if akshar doesn't play there's two spinners that i have available to them from that point of view the whole they, they are a little bit overly dependent on right handers i'm not i'm i'm not as worried about that if your right hand is a better than you know, uh, than than your left-handers, right? Um, I I I think that would be more of a problem if we had a really really good off-spinning, uh, sorry, a really really good uh, period where you had I don't know, Warn and Mushak Ahmed and uh, and Okumble, although he played for India in this uh, situation. But if you had a bunch of those sorts of guys around, maybe I'd feel a little bit different. Um, but who's the the best leg spinner they're going to come up against? It's probably Zampa now that Hasaranga is out. Um, am I missing another great leg spinner in one day cricket? I don't think I am. Right. I'm, I'm not particularly too worried about that, but we've gone through those teams pretty thoroughly. They are, um, I would say that England and Australia, who deserve to be favorites as well, being that top three bracket, have more flaws than India do. So again, I feel like, feels like a lot of these questions are picking holes in, um, uh, uh, what is a really good team? Right, it may not win the World Cup, but I feel like there's a lot of um, negativity is the wrong, not wrong term. But I, I feel like there's a lot of at the moment Indian fans looking for things that aren't there. Right? Uh, where are we? Sanjay says, "Can you do analysis on the World Cup venues like he did for these teams?" There's one reason why I may not do this, and the reason is is because the the amount of games that are played at these um, stadiums is not the same. And we don't have as much list A data specifically. Um, obviously, there's some T20 data that we can understand briefly. But then on top of all that, what I know of IPL teams is they make sure the pitches suit what they think they need. Um, and that's not going to happen in this World Cup. And then the ICC are going to be overseeing the pitches as well. So the reason I haven't done it, Sanjay, is probably because of that. We might do something where we suggest, you know, which wickets help seam bowling or batting or spin bowling or whatever that may be. Um, but I'm not sure it'll be an entire project if we're being honest. But it might be something that we, we look at. Uh, DM says, you've talked about Michael Bracewell being irreplaceable for New Zealand. Should Michael Rippon uh, be an option? I don't really understand Michael Rippon because he's had a fantastic record uh, for a long period of time. I remember seeing him for a long, a long while back and... He's one of the few left arm wrist spinners in the world and he couldn't get a county contract. It, the whole thing's so bizarre. I've never really understood why teams have not 
embraced him in the way they should. Um, and New Zealand seems to be another team. You know, the, the Dutch are the only team that sort of went, oh, this guy's really good, we'll play him. Everyone else has been a little bit like, so does that mean I'm missing something with Michael Rippon? The one thing I would say is, though, uh, DM, is that Michael Bracewell, part of the reason he's irreplaceable is the batting. Michael Rippon can hold a bat, but it is not in a Michael Bracewell point of view. Uh, you know, let's, do I have his numbers? I think I brought them up beforehand. So his strike rate in one-day cricket, well, let's look at this day cricket, is 78. So average 33, he could certainly hold a bat. Um, you know, and Bracewell... Um, in ODIs, and remember Bracewell's a bit, bit of a late developer, as we, uh, being that seems to be the thread of this show. His strike rate in ODI cricket is 118, but even in list A cricket, it's 90. Um, very, di- very different kinds of players. Um, I think from what I've seen of Rippon's batting, you know, in my life, Rippon is more of a guy who can sort of give you plucky runs towards the end. Bracewell is an agenda-setting batter um, and would make teams think about their plans very, very carefully. Oh, I was just about to... Ah, here we go. That's the question I want. Another one from Dim says, in a previous show, you said Trent Bolt may not be an ODI great because he played too few games. Is that the same true of Mitchell Stark? Yeah, I think we're getting to an era where there's a lot of guys a bit like that. The one thing I would say about Mitchell Stark is he is a... He was the best player... He was awarded best player in the 2015 World Cup. I think he was the best player again in the 2019 World Cup. I'm not sure he was in 2015, but he certainly was in 2019. Um, If he has another tournament where he's in the best five players in the tournament, that will be three World Cups where he's absolutely dominated. Trent Bolt doesn't have that, right? And I think Trent Bolt's a fantastic player as well. That, I think Mitchell Stark has the ability to touch a different level. But going forward, it's going to be more on World Cup records, uh, and I'd have to go through Trent Bolts to see. You know, obviously, he did really, really well in 2019 and 2015, but probably in both of those series, didn't quite have the impact of um, uh, didn't quite have the impact of Mitchell Stark. Although, you know, uh, New Zealand made the final in both of those tournaments, didn't they? Um, but yeah, I don't. I, I certainly don't think he was a genuine case for player of the series. Although if New Zealand win in, if New Zealand win 2019, I wonder how far off he would have been from player of the tournament there. Um, But I think Mitchell Stark's goat case, if you will, um, is probably just a little bit higher. And let's just have a look if I can bring this up really quick. And I can, and I will. Um, I just want to have a look at Bolt's overall record so in two uh oh got that wrong sorry let me do that again oh his overall record in the world cup so in the two world cups combined i have uh 39 wickets at 21.79 um so yeah it's again if, if i kind of think both of them if they had a big world cup go into that case um i'd have to look at mitchell stark's overall record um and i think i covered more because New Zealand were in New Zealand for that 2015 World Cup. So I was in Australia more. So I definitely covered more Australian games than that. And then 2019, I did cover the semifinal and the final for New Zealand. And I think I have one other game where it might have been Taunton. Um, I can't remember who they were playing. It might have been West Indies. Um, so I think I have covered a lot more of Australia's games. And Mitchell Stark has been fantastic in them. But again... That's the sort of thing. If you're if you're a star in three World Cups, 
um, and you have you know their overall records that those two guys do. I think they can overcome that. But I think if you're talking about right now, I I, I feel comf- comfortable in saying that both of them are two of the best white ball bowlers in the world and have been for a long period of time. But it is not a lot of games, right? And that does have to be factored in. Um, but anyway, thank you very much to DM for his couple of questions there and to uh, who else we have there. Andy for his super chats and um, Sanjay and R as well. Um, really interesting questions there again. Just to remind everyone, this is the last time that this podcast will be on um, uh, the main YouTube channel. So go over to Jared Kimber Podcast. I'll tweet out the link in two minutes' time if you're watching live and you can sign up to that over there. Thank you to everyone who already has. Um, uh, you know, really helpful for us to you know be able to start it with a thousand subscribers. So thank you to everyone there. And the only other thing I want to say to everyone is Wicket Cricket Manager. Go out there and, and download. I mean, it, look, I'm not going to lie. It will ruin your life a little bit, but there's nothing better to do on the toilet other than actual toilet business than use Wicked Cricket Manager. It is an addictive game. My son um, is now, uh, I've got to download a different version uh, onto my son, uh, my son's device because he steals my phone to play it all the time. Um, it, you know, it's not the first game. NBA Live was the other one. Uh, so I now have two sports games that I have to get just so I can get my phone back from him. Really, really addictive little game. Um, really fun if you get a chance. Obviously, they've been a fantastic sponsor for us uh, and they'll be with us all the way through the World Cup as well. So download the game, show your support um, and then, you know, play the game. Hopefully you play it in a more healthy way than uh, me and some of my friends have at times. Uh, but yeah, uh, play the game and enjoy it. And we'll be back on Wagon Wheel uh, next week and we've got Uncovered. And if you haven't noticed on the main channel and on the Substack and everywhere else, pretty much pivoted to full World Cup coverage um, at the moment. So we had a piece about the AI predicting the World Cup last uh, on Monday. Uh, you know, on Wednesday, we've got a piece coming out about team's best case and worst case scenario. And thank you to um, Sri Lanka for making late changes. Made me have to, have to change all that one up. Um, and then uh, later in the week, we have a piece about India and number fours um, as well. So heaps of World Cup content. We've got a ton planned for the next week. I'm trying to do a huge project. And if you haven't listened to Double Century, it is worth it. We're going through all the World Cups. And we've done, the 1992 episode was the last one I wrote. And it's so fascinating, that World Cup, that we've had to make it into two parts. Um, uh, just recorded the 1983 one, which obviously largely centers around India and Zimbabwe, really. Um, those two teams. Uh, 1987 is a fascinating one. The 1979 one, uh, it's a World Cup I didn't know as much about. And I was shocked at how interesting. There's so many weird little stories in that one and of course the 1975 um tournament has i believe pakistan's captain who i'm never forgetting who that captain was in that tournament but he missed a he missed a world cup game because he was having a hemorrhoid operation i'm just telling you there's a lot of great cricket stories in in these uh in these episodes so far not to mention things like gary gilmore you know people you know don't know a lot about so go and check all that out but we'll see you again next week here on uh wagon wheel and of course before that me and Bayram will be around for another, uh, what do you call those things? Uncovered podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. 
but we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Sainapayi and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today.